Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the ninth episode of Season 9. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know that orcas are natural predators of moose? Yeah, there's another animal fact coming your way. It sounds weird, but because moose swim between islands in search of food, it leaves them vulnerable to orcas' attacks. Now, the attacks are rare, I must say, but imagine witnessing those two goliath animals having a fight to the death. Whilst you try and picture that image, it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. Hunters will tell you that a moose is a wily and ferocious forest creature. Nonsense. A moose is a cow drawn by a three-year-old. That's a quote from American author Bill Bryson. This case was suggested by listener Brian James, and we're in the Bedfordshire town of Luton, a place we visited once before on British Murders, all the way back in Season 3, Episode 10, when I covered the story of Sabah and Saima Khan. I provided some quick-fire facts about Luton in that episode, so I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you want to learn more about this week's location. I may be omitting my key facts this week, but I'm going to begin this episode by going down a bit of a gang violence rabbit hole. I do suggest you buckle up because there's a lot to cover. The town of Luton has been plagued by gang violence, particularly in the Marsh Farm housing estate, which was built in the 1960s. Unfortunately, this area has been subjected to institutional neglect over the years, leading to a rise in unemployment and deprivation levels that exceed the town's average. The situation reached a boiling point during the mid-90s when Metropolitan Police officers were attacked during two nights of riots that broke out in July 1995. Violence erupted between police and about 500 locals who were armed with petrol bombs, bottles and bricks. Three years earlier, four days of rioting had already put Marsh Farm on the map as a place where tensions were persistently high. 
On the first day of the 1995 riots, a group of youths made a 999 call to the police after one of their friends had run away from a nearby youth detention centre and subsequently been arrested. The call was nothing more than a hoax, an elaborate ploy to bring police officers onto the estate. When the authorities arrived at the scene, they were greeted with hostility and were soon pelted with stones by the angry youths. That was the catalyst that would mark the beginning of what would turn into three full days of violent rioting. The Exodus Collective, a community collective and sound system, was formed at Marsh Farm in 1992. Their stated purpose was to run free local raves, occupy and refurbish local derelict properties, and operate as the purveyors of unorthodox approaches to community regeneration. Glenn Jenkins, who was a member of the collective back in 1995, placed the blame squarely on the police, as he felt that their response to what began as a few petty crimes was beyond excessive and downright unwarranted. Glenn said, What started as a burning car and kids protesting against their mate being beat up and arrested had all of a sudden led to what genuinely looked like a military incursion, and I mean military. I'm talking hundreds of police in columns and police helicopters too. We'd never seen a helicopter in 95. It felt like the estate had been invaded. During the third day of the riots, the tension was at its peak. It was feared that more violence would break out if it wasn't diffused. In order to try and achieve that, members of the Exodus Collective devised a plan and organised a major rave five miles away from Marsh Farm. The idea was to raise awareness about the issue and provide a safe and positive alternative outlet for people's energy and emotions which might otherwise have been directed towards joining gangs and participating in violent activities. Glenn said there were over 5,000 people expected to attend, which shows just how popular the events were and how much they united the community. The demonstration was ultimately a success, as in the early hours of the next morning, police officers were essentially left twiddling their thumbs on the estate, as seemingly everyone was at the rave. If we fast forward to the year 2013, which is when our story this week occurred, the situation had become even more alarming than before. In fact, you might be surprised to learn that the level of violence had not slowed down one bit. If anything, it had gotten worse. In just the eight months leading up to Jordan Maguire's murder in May 2013, which is why we're here, there'd already been two murders in the Marsh Farm area. That was on top of 10 reported shootings that took place between January and May of that same year. Those numbers are staggering and clearly indicate just how dangerous the neighbourhood was and quite frankly it still is. The root cause behind those incidents has been largely attributed to an ongoing feud between gangs based in Marsh Farm and nearby Lucy Farm. That rivalry has been going on for quite some time and shows no signs of diminishing anytime soon. One particularly brutal incident occurred on April 12, 2013, when Paul Foster, also known as Big Shine, was shot dead outside a house on Brunel Road in Lucy Farm. Paul's nephew, 19-year-old Delaney Brown, was a member of the Lucy Farm gang, and just weeks after his uncle's murder, he too became a victim of that violent feud between those local gangs. In early May, Delaney was intentionally run over by a car while riding his bike and died from his injuries. His murderer was identified as 22-year-old Kyle Beckford, a member of the Marsh Farm Gang, who received a life sentence with a minimum term of 24 years for his murder. The incidents didn't end there, though. Another Marsh Farm local named Kadeem Newell was arrested shortly after Delaney's death on May 5th. 
He went on to be charged with attempted murder and possessing an illegal firearm. Ironically, the 22-year-old's arrest took place during a peace rally organised by community leaders in Luton in reaction to the recent number of stabbings and shootings in the town. Unfortunately, the gathering seemed to have been held in vain as it could not prevent further tragedy from occurring just days later when yet another young person fell victim to gang violence. On May 11th, a 16-year-old boy suffered critical injuries in Marsh Farm after being shot in the back on Thricknell's Close. Police said the chances of him ever being able to walk again were slim to none. In more recent times, Marsh Farm has seen over £30 million invested into its regeneration, but gang crimes still regularly occur. In April of 2019 alone, there were 83 reported crimes in Marsh Farm and 124 reported crimes in nearby Lucy Farm. The most common offences included violent conduct, sexual offences, antisocial behaviour and burglary. Drug-related offences also continue to be an issue, with six drug-related offences reported in Lucy Farm during the month of April, which is significantly higher than the town's average of two and a half per month. According to an article published in September of that year, crime rates remained high throughout areas north and west of central Luton, which includes Marsh Farm and Lucy Farm. A total of 625 crimes were reported across those neighbourhoods during July alone. Out of those incidents, 109 occurred within just those two estates, representing approximately 17% of all crimes committed during that month. Before we move on from Luton's history of gang violence, I appreciate I'm going on a bit here, but I felt it necessary to inform you that as recently as April 2023, three men involved in a gangland shooting in broad daylight a year prior were jailed for a combined total of 32 years. The young men involved, Lewis Gatehouse, Kendall Bizimana and Samuel Martin, were all under 21 years old at the time. They attacked another group of individuals in public view while pedestrians and motorists went about their daily business nearby. The CCT footage online capturing the events, and I must admit it's shocking and disturbing to watch. Right then, I appreciate that was one hell of a tangent, but it sets the tone and highlights the ongoing gang issues that occur each day in Luton whilst also providing vital context for this case. Jordan Maguire's tragic story sheds more light on that continuing issue. He died when he was just 20 years old, leaving behind a devastated family and community. He lived in a three-bed terraced house at Thrills Close in Marsh Farm with his mum, Julie, and also had a girlfriend who was reportedly pregnant when he lost his life. Despite the challenges of living in such a tough environment, Jordan was described by his neighbours as a kind-hearted and sociable young man who got on well with everyone he met. I can't offer much more in the way of background information as there's simply not enough readily available, but at some point in his life, Jordan began to sell drugs. Now, I'm not going to comment on whether or not he was affiliated with the Marsh Farm gang because I don't know that information for certain, but the police and media would go on to insist that his murder was the result of a revenge attack by a rival gang member. You can decide what you make of that as the story progresses. The villain of our episode is Jason Nelson, a 32-year-old man from Grenada in the West Indies. While it is unclear when he migrated to the UK, his criminal record before his arrival showed consistent involvement with local law enforcement through violent offence convictions such as theft and wounding with intent. Jason settled in Marsh Farm, which makes sense given what we know about him and the area, but had seemingly moved away by the time he murdered Jordan Maguire. 
Sunday, May 26, 2013 was the fateful day that ended with Jordan's murder, but that wasn't the first violent offence Jason Nelson committed that day. He met a 60-year-old grandmother that evening whom he'd seen earlier in the day at a local supermarket. They exchanged pleasantries and Jason returned to her flat to have a few beers and smoke some weed. However, things turned dark at around 6pm when he attempted to rape a young mother in the stairwell of the building. Jason is said to have taken a fancy to the 25-year-old and left the flat to pursue her. He reportedly grabbed hold of her and placed his hands down the front of his trousers as if to expose himself, but she immediately shouted at him to get off her, which he thankfully did. Jason made his way to the bottom of the stairs and was about to head towards a local shop before turning around and heading back for the 60-year-old's flat. In her kitchen, he is said to have informed her that he had plenty of money and always preferred older women's company. He then proceeded to rape her while her grandkids were in the next room, one of whom was screaming throughout the brutal attack. Speaking to police after the assault, the grandmother said, I tried to get away from him. I told him to get off. He said, I am going to do this whether you like it or not. Jason then proceeded to give himself a quick wash in the sink before attempting to force himself upon her once more, but he was persuaded to leave the flat before doing so. Within 90 minutes, Jason had violently assaulted two innocent women in a spree of violence that would culminate in murder. At around half seven, he met a couple who stumbled across him outside the Nisa store on the estate. 22-year-old Dennis Camus and his 16-year-old girlfriend wanted to buy some weed and they felt like Jason would know how to help them acquire some. As I mentioned earlier, Jordan occasionally sold what the couple was looking for, a fact that Jason knew, so they headed for Thrails Close on his advice. Arriving shortly before 8pm, Jason accompanied the couple and headed inside Jordan's home with Dennis while his girlfriend stayed outside. A £20 deal was agreed with the two buyers being led by Jordan to his kitchen where he kept a big bag of weed hidden inside a biscuit tin. As Jordan turned his back to bag up the two men's purchase, Jason withdrew an almost 8 inch long knife from his waistband and lifted it high above his head. The knife came crashing down as Jason stabbed Jordan first in the upper chest towards the right side. That was followed by Jason stabbing Jordan towards the left side again of his upper chest. Shocked at what had just occurred, Jordan turned round and reportedly shouted, What the fuck? Stop it! Get out! Get out! As he attempted to flee by escaping out the back door, Jordan was stabbed a third time by Jason, who yelled, You little pussy, whilst doing so. The entire incident was witnessed by Dennis, who said that Jason calmly took the knife back into his waistband after the attack and rode away from the house on his bike. It was Jordan's mum that found him dying in the street as she returned home. He would not survive the attack despite her efforts to save him by calling 999. Emergency services were alerted to the scene at approximately 8.15pm and quickly arrived to transport Jordan to the nearby Luton and Dunstable Hospital for urgent medical attention. The medical personnel did everything they could to save him, but Jordan sadly passed away shortly after being admitted. His cause of death was later confirmed as being due to a punctured aorta. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Jordan's pregnant girlfriend, who was in the house at the time of the attack, showed quick thinking by capturing some evidence that would help solve the case. She'd taken photos of two individuals, a man and a young woman, running away from the house shortly after hearing Jordan screaming. 
She shared the photographs with police officials working on Jordan's murder investigation. The man in the picture was the aforementioned Dennis, with the young woman being his girlfriend. The young couple voluntarily attended Luton Police Station to explain to officers what happened that day. Both were immediately arrested and held in custody for further questioning by authorities as part of their ongoing investigation. Dennis would say to the police when questioned, The next thing I saw was a knife rise above and attack Jordan. I saw the knife go into Jordan. Jordan acted all shocked. He stabbed him a second time. He showed no regrets or remorse. As the investigation unfolded, it became clear that Jordan's killer had fled the scene and gone into hiding. But where exactly had he gone? Jason was laying low in Ipswich, a town 100 miles east of Marsh Farm. Convincing one of his friends to let him stay with her at her house, he eventually fled the UK and returned to his native Grenada, where he remained for a short while before heading south to Trinidad. Back at Marsh Farm, the estate bore a striking resemblance to the riot scenes of 1995, as armed police units patrolled the area carrying assault rifles and wearing heavy body armour. Bedfordshire Police even invoked Section 60 of the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act 1994, which meant they had free will to stop and search people and vehicles without suspicion. Jason Nelson was finally arrested at Piaco International Airport on October 16, 2013 by officers from the Trinidad and Tobago Police Service and the National Crime Agency. His arrest followed the release of some CCTV images in June from the day of Jordan's murder in which a man matching his description could be seen purchasing some cigs or possibly a lighter, I couldn't really tell from the video, as well as a can of what was more than likely alcohol. It was thought to be the same man that had been spotted pushing a white bike through the Pearly Centre on the route to Jordan's house. The Pearly Centre was a shopping precinct that was demolished in early 2018 as part of that aforementioned regeneration of Marsh Farm. It's since been replaced by 93 homes. Once extradited back to the UK for questioning, Jason explained that, although he admitted to having killed Jordan, he said he was acting in self-defence as he felt his life was at risk. It began, so said Jason, when Jordan removed what he deemed to be a poor quality standard of weed from the biscuit tin, and attempted to exchange it for the £20 that had been agreed. Explaining to the officers that the overly dry weed didn't smell of anything, something which signifies low grade, Jason said, I refused the purchase. He started to think I was a police informant. I don't know why he came to that assumption. He pulled a knife. I was frightened. Jason claimed that Jordan then attempted to stab him with the knife, and during the scuffle, Jordan ended up being the one who was stabbed. Jason went on to say, I thought he was going to rearm himself. I wanted to get out of there. I had no intention of killing him. It's also worth noting that Jason denied having sexually assaulted the 25-year-old mother in the stairwell and also denied having raped the 60-year-old grandmother. He said neither of those incidents happened. Strangely, the jury of five women and seven men at Luton Crown Court found Jason not guilty regarding his sexual assault and rape charges at his murder trial in October 2015. They did, however, agree that he was guilty of murdering Jordan Maguire, even though the true motive for the killing never came out in court. Judge Michael Kay handed Jason a life sentence on October 22nd with a minimum term of 27 years. The judge described him as an extremely violent and dangerous man when passing the sentence. With a parole eligibility date of October 15th, 2042, Jason Nelson will be 59 years old when he's able to apply. 
one can only sit and wonder what Marsh Farm will look like when that time comes. Will the area's regeneration project have a lasting impact? Or will the plague of gang violence continue to be as prevalent as it has been for the last three decades? I suppose only time will tell. And that was the story of murderer Jason Nelson. Thanks again, Brian James, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. I appreciate that half of the episode was me discussing Luton's gang violence issues, but for me, the episode would have lacked vital context if I hadn't have done that. If you're listening on Spotify, I keep saying this every week and people are getting in touch. I love it. Thank you. Keep doing it. There is a section at the bottom of each episode where you can let me know what you thought about this case. I've got seven new reviews to read out this week. South African Yorkshire Lass left a five-star review on Apple Podcast South Africa titled British Murders. It reads, clear, concise, and no waffle. Just enough detail, not too much. The friendly, relaxed UK accent makes British murders a favourite amongst true crime podcast junkies. Hannah Triple Zero left a five-star review on Apple Podcast Sweden titled Excellent. It reads, just recently found this podcast, love the British accent, easy to follow the stories even for me, who's not an English native. Artel Knock 2 left a five-star review on Apple Podcast USA. Titled From a Brit to a Yank, it reads, Me and my girlfriend have listened to your podcast for the last two summers as we travel north to Alaska from Florida. In 2019, on our first trip north together, there were two mysterious deaths in South Dakota, three murders in British Columbia, and an accident that resulted in a death in Alaska, all of which took place within hours of us driving along our travel route. All of the events were explained or solved by the local police, but having only met my girlfriend a few months earlier, and this being our first long road trip together, by the second event, I was sleeping with one eye open. <laughs> Keep up the great podcasts. What a great story. The iPad Dud left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts UK titled Amazing. I guess that's when to say the iPad Dude. It reads, I often listen on the back of the motorbike, even though it's not meant to be relaxing, it is. I think it's because of Stuart's voice. Love the layout, simple and easy to listen to. Would love to see if you can find a case in Congleton, Cheshire. I'll see what I can do for you, dude. Tony the Tiger left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. Some great names here. Titled Great. I swear I'm not making this up, by the way. It reads, Hi, Stuart. I listen to your short work in a busy warehouse. It really makes my shift go quicker. I like how straight to the point and factual it is, and the episode length is perfect. Wishing you and your family well. Oran Mordaunt left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. Probably saying that wrong. Titled Bingeable, it reads, Just spent the last few days in bed sick and binge used this over that time. Glad to have found it for sure. Interestingly told and with an enjoyable format. Keep up the good work. And finally, Michelle Brady left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Awesome. It reads, Love, love, love this podcast. I have binge listened right from series one. Listen to your lovely voice for eight hours while at work. You make the day so much nicer. Thank you, Stu Blues. Thank you again, South African Yorkshire Lass, Hannah, Artelnock2, the iPad Dud, Tony the Tiger, Oran and Michelle for leaving the show such lovely reviews. If you want to leave a review and have it read on a future episode, you can do that on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis, you can do that on my website. The links for Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee are on there. Thank you, Anne-Marie, for buying me three beers via Buy Me A Coffee. The message left was, Thanks for the stories, humour and respect to the victims. Keep up the good work. I have two suggestions for you. 
One, the murder of Anne James, Walsall. Two, the murder of Gina Lander, Walsall. I'm laughing at Walsall there. I guess you're from Walsall. I've added both cases to my spreadsheet for you, Anne-Marie. Thank you, hello, and welcome to my latest Patreon member, Katie Hardin. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me on social media. When I cover the episode, you'll get a cheeky little shout-out. And that concludes another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.